And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Stewart hit by Jonathan, and they'll go at it, and they're going at it. Jonathan and Paul Stewart, here they, couple of sluggers, the helmet's still on, ooh, a rugged battle, Sam Jonathan and Paul Stewart. Hello fans, before jumping into this action-packed episode of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, just a reminder to please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and or comment if you can. This makes the podcast much easier to find for your fellow hockey fans. Also, remember to visit some of our great online sites such as WHA Hockey on Facebook, Pro Hockey Alumni on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Hartford Whaler Nation on Facebook and Twitter, and a site that we manage the official Boston Bruins alumni on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and of course, bostonbruinsalumni.com. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, please visit prohockeyalumni.org. WHA and NHL tough guy, Hall of Fame referee, and cancer survivor, Paul Stukat Stewart may be the most interesting man in hockey, but he made his mark well beyond the sport, inspiring people from all walks of life to find in themselves the will and the courage to achieve and survive even the most dire of circumstances. Incredibly, Paul climbed to the top of the NHL ladder twice, as a player and a referee. In episode 19 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, we focus on Paul's playing career an incredible journey from Zamboni driver at the Philadelphia Flyers practices to a respected enforcer in the big leagues. Paul delivers fascinating tales from his days slugging out in the wild slapshot era of minor league hockey and his eventual climb to the big leagues with the WHA Cincinnati Stingers and NHL Quebec Nordiques. What fueled Paul's unlikely drive to the top? You'll get a good idea in his stories about meeting hockey legend Eddie Shore in a heartfelt letter he received from former publicistic foe Jack Carlson. This podcast is crammed with entertaining hockey stories and life inspiration, as is Paul's new book titled You Wanna Go, which is sure to be a bestseller. The book is available on his website, youwantago.com, and amazon.com, and wherever great books are sold. This book is a must-read for any hockey fan. Now, let's talk with Stucat Stewart himself. Welcome back to the show, and today we have one of hockey's great personalities. He's a funny guy. He's tough, gritty, salt of the earth, and an inspirational character in hockey. And I think most of all, when I think of Paul Stewart, I think of a guy who has a great respect for uh, the game of hockey and the people who made the game great. So welcome to the, uh, the show, Paul Stewart. It's great to be here, Mark, and thank you very much for having me. On the top of my 
Christmas list this year is your new book, You Want to Go. I can't imagine a person more perfectly suited to to write an entertaining book about all aspects of hockey and life. Uh, the best part about the book so far is I, I'm still awaiting for it to arrive. It just came out today as we're uh, broadcasting this is the cover, beautiful cover of yourself and the famous shot of you squaring off with none other than Terry O'Reilly. And you and Terry have formed, obviously, a friendship over the years. Uh, and he actually did the forward for your book. Talk a little bit about working with Terry on this project. Well, of course, the debut game of my NHL career was in Boston, and it was immediately following uh, a game the prior Tuesday night in Quebec when Robbie Fatorik got embroiled with Bobby Schmatz and cut him up pretty badly. And the end result was that I was recalled from Cincinnati of the Central Hockey League and pretty well knew what my dance card was going to be. I, um, I, I started in the warm-up with Cashman, who speared my shoulder pad trying to intimidate me and I just chased him right into the Bruins den and I said we can do it now or we can wait for the TV it's up to you <laughs> <laughs> but I think they didn't realize that I grew up about six miles from that arena in the Boston Garden and my father and my grandfather and my brothers had all officiated and played there and of course my grandfather refereed in the NHL prior to me and uh, it was the proper setting for Thanksgiving night, November 22nd, 1979. Going back to the, uh, the start of your, your pro career, you're with my old friend Bob Crocker at UPenn. You went to Groton School. Now, you're a tough kid from Dorchester, but you, at the end of your college education, could have grabbed that briefcase and polyester suit and been on your way with pretty much doing whatever you wanted to do. But your focus uh, clearly was on becoming a pro hockey player. Talk a little bit about that that drive, that single-minded focus to uh, to get yourself uh, a, a pro contract and how it all came to be that you became a Binghamton broom duster. Well, as you mentioned, Bob Crocker, who had been the assistant general manager and player personnel supervisor with Jack Kelly with the Whalers, had been my college coach, and he afforded me the opportunity to go to Penn to get an Ivy League education. I met my wife at college, my first wife, and subsequently I played baseball as well. I worked my way through, and I was very close to graduating. But I, after my sophomore year, I didn't play. I put, my junior year, I never played a game, and my senior year, I played three games, and Bob told me that uh, I wasn't in, in the lineup for him the rest of the year. So Steve Sterling, who had played at BU under Crocker and had played for the Braves, uh, knew me, and another fellow named Richie Hart that had played at English High and New Prep and then Boston College, played with a little bit with the Bruins. Um, I knew they were in Binghamton, and Bob Kelly, who number nine for the Hounds, for the Flyers, had, mm -hmm. they practiced at the Class of 23 rank. He said to me, pick the worst team in pro hockey and ask them for a tryout, which is what I did. And <laughs> those fellas interceded for me and got me a tryout. And on December 13th, after I finished my last exam, I went down to the bus station and bought a, a $14 ticket and, and went to Binghamton, got off the bus with my skates and started with them and uh, 
subsequently that year, uh, as Billy Gratton, one of the players on the team, said, uh, we all like the way you come at it, but if you think you're going to make it as a goal scorer, you better think again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the way the game was being played was physical, and as an American with less experience than a lot of the players I was playing with or against, I had to pretty well move in the direction of the way that the Flyers were playing, and I knew I'd have to go up against players of that of that ilk. And uh, it was a calculated and uh, decision. It was a calculated decision that I had to make, which I did because ever since I was a little boy, my first skates, my first strides. I, I wanted to play hockey, and a lot of kids in Boston in 1958 would have wanted to play for the Red Sox or maybe play football at Harvard Stadium or, or something like that at Boston College. But I always had my heart set on playing at Boston Garden and skating there and being in the NHL, and uh, I never wavered from that, even though there were obstacles. There certainly were. Uh, there, there, some of the ones you just outlined, an American player, uh, limited college experience. Took, for a young guy like yourself, that takes a lot of guts and it takes a lot of fortitude because that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I think a lot of guys just would have said, it's just not worth it because you knew full well what you had to go through to make it. Um, but you get a, you get on that bus and you go and you are, are, are with Binghamton, kind of a historic North American League franchise with Rod Bloomfield, Gypsy Joe Hardy, uh, but quite a character, a lot of characters on that team. And, of course, all around the league at that time, the North American Hockey League, I mean, that was where, obviously, uh, Slapshot was uh, inspired by that that movie. And you're playing a team like the Jarros, uh, both up there in Quebec, and you've got uh, Wally Weir and Bad News Bilodeau. You've got to really want it, and you clearly did. What was that like, getting out there uh, and just knowing what you're going to face every night and standing up to that, that test on a nightly basis? I was more afraid of giving into the fear of chasing my dream than I was in facing those guys. And because of the way I was brought up and the training I had had as a boy from my father and watching my grandfather and going against obstacles that I saw them do, but the respect that they gained, I knew it was worth the effort. And the other part of it was it became a challenge to me because I felt that, you know, where I was from, we were just as tough as anybody that ever put on a pair of skates. Mm -hmm. Although there weren't many kids from Dorchester, we didn't have a rink. I mean, there, there were no rinks in Dorchester. I had to, I had to go to the arena or, or maybe skate on, on an MDC outdoor rink and, or out on the pond or in the backyard. Right. And the fact is that, that because I, I, I grew up on stories of, of, of uh, Art Ross and Eddie Shore and Dick Clapper, like, like the Slapshot movie, you know, old-time hockey and, and skating at the Boston Arena and all of those things and being with my dad and watching him referee when Snooks Kelly and, and Jack Kelly and, and Ned Harkness and Eddie Jeremiah. I mean, those were people I knew, and I called them when I was a little boy on their first name. Right. So it, it, was, my, it, was, my, it was my life. And I wasn't going to give it up because of Wally Weir or Bad News Dodo, because <laughs> I knew I was just as tough as those guys. Absolutely. And you know what? They, I may have been measured by playing against O'Reilly and Jonathan and Secord and Wensink and Cashman and all those guys, but in the end, 
they also were measured by going up against me because I was no slouch when it came to being physical or having to defend myself or my teammates. And the right in your in middle of your stint in the North American League, uh, you came to the attention of the Edmonton Oilers. You went up there for a couple of games with uh, Bep Gidlin. Uh Teammates included Glenn Sather and Norm Ullman, a couple of Hall of Famers. Uh, how did the, how did that come about? Did you get a chance to play much on that tryout? No, I had two shifts, and I got a one penalty. I hit a, a Craig Patrick in the head with an elbow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny because his grandfather and my grandfather uh, coached against one another. With my grandfather was with Chicago, and 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 of course uh, Lynn Patrick and Muzz Patrick, the sons, played in the NHL, and and Lester Patrick was the GM and coach of the Rangers. Right. But uh, the day I arrived in Edmonton, Pep Quinlan had Teddy Scarf and Frank Beaton and me all show up at the same time, each from a different league, like the Central League, the Southern League, and, and I was the North American League. And I wasn't Canadian, and that was something. And I, I learned, I knew that right away, because he, he, he didn't even know my name. God rest his soul, uh-huh. he was a good guy, but he kept calling me Blair and John and Ron <laughs> and Ralph. And I said to him, my name's Paul. And uh, get out there, you know. And all he wanted to do was audition a tough guy. Right. So he ended up keeping beaten, which was fine. And I went back to the North American League. And the way it worked out, it worked out well for me because I ended up playing eventually in the American League. I got picked up by uh, the Rangers, had me on their, on their list. I got a chance to play against the Flyers, the guys that, that inspired me. And at Penn, when I was a class of 23 rank, Zamboni driver. And uh, I was Mr. Gopher at that rank for the Flyers. And so everything, somehow or another, just like Forrest Gump, it all sort of fitted in. Well, it's, I, it's, funny I, you see, yeah, it's funny you say that, Paul, because you've crossed paths with pretty much everybody uh, if you look at it historically at hockey, you've pretty, everybody who's anybody in hockey from you know the early generations, from your your dad's generations all the way through today, uh, you've 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 had interactions of significance with almost everybody. Well, it's funny because I I was playing for Binghamton and I played a game in the old uh, Springfield Coliseum, the Big E, and. Uh, I fought Brian Maxwell, who was a tough kid. He was a number one draft pick, and he was a big guy. He ran me into the fence. We had a chain link fence, and, and I turned around, and I fought him. End of the first period, Larry Kish was my coach, who, who coached a little bit for the Whalers. Um, he brought me outside, and there was an old fellow there, and I went to shake his hand. He said, uh, are you Stewart?" I said, yes. I went to shake his hand. He grabbed my hand and inspected it. He says, you're big hands. He says, you're bigger than your grandfather. But are you as tough as he was? I said, I'm half as tough, which makes me still pretty tough. <laughs> and he said to me, I'm Eddie Shore. And I think that that type of, of acknowledgement and that type of respect fueled me even further to continue to work, to get to the place where I wanted to go. And then eventually I met Mush March and I met, Black Cat Johnny Gagnon, and I met uh, Ching Johnson and all of these stars from the 20s and 30s in the NHL, the, the spawning ground of the league. And, and they all wanted to meet Bill Stewart's grandson. And I, I took that, that, 
that that was a great honor to me. And along the way, I met a lot of other famous people, Pete Rose and, and Ted Williams and uh, Larry Zonka, and I met uh, lots of you know basketball guys that, that could play. And I, I looked at everybody as, as great athletes, and I looked at myself and I said, I'm going to get to that plateau where they are. I may not be a superstar, but I'm going to be a guy that they're going to have to respect, and I'll earn it. And the end of Zedberg said to me at the end of my career, he said, for a guy that had only got two goals in the NHL, he said, you've taken him a long way. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you, you know, you made it into the NHL twice over in two different professions, which is remarkable, both times starting from scratch and working your tail off to get to the top. The Cincinnati Stingers take notice. Can you tell us how the Stingers – uh, got word to you that you're getting called up to play uh, Major League Hockey uh, with the Cincinnati Stingers? Well, it's a Thanksgiving game in Birmingham, and the Stingers didn't have very many tough guys. They had Fatorik and Dudley and Hislop playing on a line, and the Bulls, Birmingham, put out their tough guys, and they had a lot of them, including uh, uh, Baudouin and Pilado and Beaton and Hanson, and they had a bunch. Durbano, don't forget Steve Durbano too. Yeah, well, yeah, he and I, he and I got into it once with the sticks. <laughs> I took the stick away and broke it in half, <laughs> and handed it back to him. So you just, you just look at at that game, and then Flo Potvin came to New Haven, and I had an axe to grind against the Rangers, and I, I pretty well throttled that bench the first period and got tossed. I took my mom and dad out for pizza in New Haven. And uh, at Sal's, and we had a good time. And I went back to the rink. Larry Kish was coaching. He said, "We're looking for you. Where have you been?" I said, "I was out for dinner. I couldn't play second and third period." So he <laughs> said, "Well, I, I want you to meet this person." I walked over, and there was a fellow there with a French accent, and he handed me his card, and his name was Flo Potvin. Right, right. He was uh, cousins to uh, Dennis and Jean Potvin, and. Uh, he said, uh, you put on a good show tonight. He said, uh, we could use you in Cincinnati. He said, you'd like to come. I said, for what? What? How much? What? Am I coming to just clean your laundry or am I coming to play? <laughs> and he said, uh, we'll give you a, a three-game tryout. I said, I don't need a tryout. I know how good I am. I said, I want 10 games. I want 500 a game, guaranteed, whether I skate or don't. And if you do that, I'm your man. Otherwise, thanks for coming. And the next night I was back in Binghamton. Jerry Raptor showed up. I scored a goal and uh, got into a gym with somebody. And the next thing I know, I was on a plane to Cincinnati. The, the Stingers, as you noticed, as you mentioned, uh, essentially were uh, assaulted when they went down to Birmingham. I happened to listen to the game on the radio, uh, Radio 700, 50,000 watts, Andy Mac Williams. Uh, Oh, yeah. There was total total chaos, and uh, they had to change the the time. They brought up Willie Trogonitz, who did, had just been banned from the IHL. Alf Handrahan, Bruce Gregg, but you're the one who who stuck out throughout the, throughout the entire season. Uh, your first, do you remember your first game with the Stingers and, and how those early days all went down? Because the league was getting was like an arms race at that point. Uh, everybody was loading up with tough guys, so you had no shortage of uh, of challengers, I'm sure. Well, I didn't play my first game. It was against Indianapolis Racers. And I sat on the end of the bench. And when the period, when the game was over, the third period, I walked into Tamara's office. I had a, he had 
roll of toilet paper in my hand. I said, Jock, you brought me all the way here to play. I didn't even get one shift, so if I'm going to get crapped on, I, I should at least have toilet paper with me. <laughs> and he, he said, uh, we play Birmingham tomorrow, you'll play. And I turned around and walked out. And the next day I got to the rink and there and my bed was packed and everything was done for me in comparison to the minors and I went to Birmingham and uh, I I walked by uh, the owner Mr. Bassett at the time and they had Glenn Sonmore coaching and wouldn't you know uh, Carlin Bassett was with her dad the great tennis player mm-hmm. she was just a little girl. and I said to her here's a box of Kleenex for your daddy because I'm going to make him cry tonight I'm going to beat up the whole team <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know I, I more or less threw the gauntlet down because I knew what I had to do and I said in the dressing room I'm going to go by alphabetical order beating Bodeland <laughs> and, and Hans, Hansen came by and said to me I said you're not in the lineup tonight I'm only doing the beads and uh, <laughs> I fought those guys and then a couple nights later I got to Hartford and I was playing on a line with Richie LaDuke and uh and, and Reggie Thomas and it was funny because I was playing left wing and wouldn't you know it uh, Johnny McKenzie who I had watched playing uh, he was from Calgary, played with the Rangers and played of course with the Bruins number 19, Ty we all grew up watching the Bruins and I, I'm lined up next to him and he, he went to hook me and I, sna- I smacked him with a, with a little quick elbow to the mouth and I skated by him and the puck was there and I banged it in and I got the puck didn't have a logo on it, which tells you something. But uh, I go back to the bench, and I hand the puck to the trainer, and I look, and here comes Carlson. Uh, prior to the game, Jack Kelly had said to me, you know, respecting everything you did and to get here, and he said, I'm giving you a piece of advice. He said, stay away from Jack Carlson because he's in a class of his own. I said, oh, that's right. I said, well, I appreciate the advice. Thank you very much. <laughs> and it was interesting because now Carlson came out and somehow the gloves came off and we stood at center ice right between the two benches in Hartford in the big civic in the civic center and we stood toe to toe and I, I think the fight went for a good minute minute and a half and it was punch for punch trading shots right left left right and when we, we looked at each other and pulled each other in we were tired and, and I said to uh Bill Friday, we're, we're all set. We don't need any help. And we just skated to the box. And there was no push and shove and cat calling or mm-hmm. anything. But we got to the box, and after a minute or two, there was no glass, no partitions between our, our penalty boxes. Uh, Jack leans back. He says, you know we have to go again. And I said, well, it's your barn. I said, your show. Anytime you want. I'll be out in three minutes. <laughs> and we came out. And uh, went back to the bench. Next shift, I went out. He came out, threw the puck around the back of the net. He bumped my goalie. We dropped the gloves and went at it again. And a lot of people say, how did you do against Jack Carlson? Well, he didn't ask for a third fight. <laughs> and that's not, a, that's not disparaging of him because he was as tough as they came, just like Jack Kelly said. But I was pretty good, too. And I had resolve in my heart. I was not going down. And the fact is that, that uh, you know, you got to remember, my first year in Binghamton, I had 44 majors in 46 games. I fought every night. 
and I and I practiced and I learned and I worked at it. Plus, you know, I was six one, two ten, strong, and I came from a neighborhood where my brother gets stabbed on Christmas Eve for his hockey equipment. So it wasn't, you know, and the, and the uh, Wahlberg is from there, so you right. figure it out. I'd like to say this about Jack Carlson. From 1977 until about a month ago, we may have seen each other in rinks and played against one another, but we never, ever engaged ever again. And when I was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame with the induction coming up, Jack Carlson sent me a beautiful letter. And I think it's testimony to the respect that I was trying to earn and the fact is that I gave to him the same respect and to me it's part of the reason why I did everything I did. I got exactly from the game the recognition and the respect that I was seeking. Absolutely. You can feel that when you talk to people about yourself you can, when you talk about the game in general um, that's the key word that resonates is respect and that's earned and you certainly did that I'd like to get your 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 impressions of of, of a few guys who came in who would go on to become two of the most prolific players in the history of hockey and Hall of Famers Mike Gartner and Mark Messier I'd like to if you could re- recall what, what were your first thoughts on on seeing those two kids you think they had that type of potential well Gartner came in right from training camp and he could cover the length of the rink, goal line to goal line, seven strides. He, he was easily one of the fastest skaters I ever saw and, and most efficient when he skated. He had a great stride, and he, he was not a vicious kid. He was not a mean guy. He was, he was a, uh, a guy that, when you look at him, you'd say, uh, you know, he had the grace of playing along the same lines as, as a uh, maybe a Normie Ullman or, or a Davey Keon or someone along that line that, that he played the game well and he didn't shy away but he wasn't prone to fighting right. and people respected his ability and, and I think that his career reflected it and he was a thoughtful guy and you know he's a Christian guy and you know, no one ever mocked him for that. Other people had that born again thing going, but he he had it. He he was he was not overbearing about his mm-hmm. life. Right. And he married a nice girl. And I, I when I when I and he had over 500 goals in the NHL. And when you look at a guy like that, and you walk into a room in Toronto at the 2000 All Star Game, and he walks up and gives you a hug. You know what? That's the respect right. that I was seeking. And I think that you, you, you look at him and then you think to the next guy, number 11. Well, Messier came in and he had played a little bit in Indianapolis. Then he went home, but then he ended up with us. And he was just an uncut block of granite. <laughs> and he, he hadn't really found his way yet. He was, he was young. He was only 17. I have to say, illegally, I took him in to sleep out of Louis, and he and Pete Rose and I sat down and had a couple beers. And I, I always laugh about that, because he was barking at me one night in New York, and I went over to the bench, and I said, hey, why don't you shut up and sit down? And, and, and Colin Campbell, the coach, Mr. Know-it-all, he said, uh, you can't talk to my captain like that. I said, why not? I bought him his first beer. <laughs> the fact is that uh, Messier was a great, great competitor. I could see it. 
and he was strong. And as I say, the block of granite eventually got chiseled to the point that he became a guy that that not only commanded respect, but he he did things that others could never do, such as what he did in New York. I guarantee we're going to win. When he said that, I was sitting someplace. I was in the National League as a referee, and I said, those guys are going to win tonight. That guy's going to take them over to the top. I used to slide up to him and say, hey, uh, back off and watch what you say, or I'll go over to the fence and tell everybody about your only goal in the WHA. <laughs> <laughs> he flipped it from center right, and it bounced and bounced and bounced, and he was, in the meantime, on the bench, and the puck went in the net. <laughs> <laughs> and a whole lot more followed after that, uh, less than artistic one. Uh, one, one, one of the guys our, our fans are certainly familiar with, I was curious what, what Barry Melrose was like uh, as a young kid and a player. He's the type of guy that if you had a daughter, you'd want her to go out with him. He was just the nicest, most fun-loving guy and, and, and right to the basics. We used to laugh because, you know, people would send us fan mail and then in, some women would include their pictures. And Jamie Hislop and I used to tape them to the back of our locker. And you go over to Melrose's locker and he'd be sitting there showing us the pictures of his new tractor or his new combine. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he married a nice girl. And the thing about him is that, I mean, he's, he's almost like, a Bob Hope. You know, no one can say a bad word about him. Cause, and he played hard, and he wasn't afraid. But fighting was not his forte. And Whitey Stapleton, who played with him his rookie year, he took him and worked with him and helped him. And I, I always remember how hard Nelly worked. And I always remember that, that he was an advocate for me. He stood up for me when Floyd Smith tried to get me to quit, kept moving me here, there, and everywhere. Uh, finally, uh, Melrose went to the management and said, you know, we need the cat back. We can't do it without him. So that's how I ended up back in Cincinnati My, after Boyd sent me to four teams in the minors. Moving ahead to the summer of 79, you reunite with Jacques Demers with the Quebec Nordiques. How did that all transpire? Well, the WHA folded, and they had a dispersal draft, and I had a contract that was valid with Cincinnati. So the teams went through the draft. They tell me I was the last player picked. Who cares? I was getting 52,000 U.S. I was getting 2,500 to report to whatever camp I was going to. And no matter what money they ever paid me, expenses was all in U.S. And I knew I might end up in Quebec, but there were three Canadian teams of the four. So, you know, I, I played my hunches correct, correctly. And uh, the fact, I didn't have an agent. So long story short, I did eventually get an agent, and uh, it was a fellow out of Minnesota, Keith Hansel, who's mm -hmm. the district attorney in St. Paul, and a good guy, and he worked with Butchie Deadmarsh. That's how I ended up with him. I just let him field calls for me, because I, I ultimately made the decisions of what I wanted to do. I went to Penn. I went <laughs> to Groton. My, 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 my classmate at Groton is a Rhodes Scholar, 14-term congressman. So it's not like I hung around with a bunch of stiffs. Right. And the fact is that that uh, Demers called me when the draft happened. He said, Cat, you're back with me. I said, I couldn't be happier. Jacques Demers 
is one of the nicest human beings I ever met in my life. And the fact is that he treated me and respected me and, and was good to me. And he gave me the opportunity to fulfill that dream to play in the National Hockey League, skate in Boston. I mean, there were factors that involved it themselves, but Andre Boudrias was the assistant. He skated with me every day. He made me into a better skater. So much so that when I started to referee, I mean, I lasted another 20 years till I was 52. And I think that, you know, just being with those guys and being in the call say, and I tell people, that's where they, they built that rink for Jean Bellabeau. And Guy Lafleur paid for it when he played junior there. But they had to big up, build it bigger when Paul Stewart arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Paul, you know, in that 79-80 season with Quebec, do you remember your first uh, NHL goal? Yeah, you can barely, most people would say, oh, yeah, I shot it high and hard, went up in the top corner, clink, clink. Guess what? I, I, I was in front of the net, and I made a move to the left and a move to the right and a move to the left, and the puck skidded off my stick, and you, you could read National Hockey League <laughs> as it rolled across. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it, it all counts. Hey, what the heck happened with you and Bobby Schmatz in uh, that, that famous picture of you two? Yeah, you seemed like you just really got under his skin. And uh, what, what was the story with you and Schmatz? Bobby Petoric was never afraid of Schmatz. But I had made uh, a promise to Jacques Demers that I was going to make sure that Schmatz never got near Petoric. And I knew Schmutz was going to come. So we, we played against one another in Colorado. He got traded from Boston to Edmonton, and then he ended up with Cherry in Colorado with the, uh, with the Rockies. And I went by the bench and challenged Cherry. I said, put that Schmutz out here. Let's see what he's got. And he came out, and I hit him with a forearm right in the chest, knocked him back about 10 feet. wasn't that big. But he came back with the stick and tried to gouge me in the eye. He cut me underneath my eye. I moved my head just at the last second. I turned my stick over. I went right at him because I, I had played in the minors. I knew I played with Larry Mavity and a whole bunch of guys that knew how to handle the stick. Billy Orr. And, and so I knew how to do it. Teddy McCaskill. So long story short, we both got thrown out. And he went off one end and I went off the other except I knew the rink. And I ran around the end and right down the hallway, and he turned the corner. I was standing right there, and I jabbed him with my stick, and away we went. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, we, it was my birthday. It was March 21st. I'll never forget it. I went out that night, had a few uh, drinks, and we had some fun, and got on the plane and went to L.A. And the team checks into the hotel right next to the Fabulous Forum. And I normally roamed with Jamie Hislop. And what do you think happens? Damaris said to me, Cat, stay here. Well, that can only mean one thing to me. I'm, I'm getting moved or sent down or something. And the whole team gets, and I see Jamie get on the elevator, and I'm like, so I'm standing there. I said, Jacques, what's up? Am I, uh, are you done for me? And he, he said, Cat, this is for you. And he handed me a key. And there was a bellman there. And I went to get my bags, and the bellman said, uh, we're taking you up. And I went upstairs, and it was the presidential suite with a big fruit basket, and a bottle of champagne, and a birthday card. And Demers said, thanks for everything you do. That's awesome. 
That's a you beautiful know, they can thing. They say what they want about Jacques Demers. You know, he wasn't an excellent old guy or, he, you know, whatever. But you know what? He knew how to motivate, and he won the Stanley Cup. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, he's my friend. That's awesome. That's a great story. I had, I had not heard that before, and you know, I've heard a lot of great things about Jacques. His record uh, speaks for itself, as you said, uh, both in the WHA and the NHL with the Blues, the Red Wings. He had a lot of success, and of course, winning the Stanley Cup. Paul, looking back um, at your career, and I, I one thing I forgot to ask you about is the training camp with the New York Rangers. Um, uh, guy who's a good friend of yours, Nick Fertiu, he is also there. And you've told a story before about how you two squared off not only on the ice, but in the, I think in your hotel room as well. I think uh, an intern, John Halligan, was the PR director for the Rangers, and he roomed us together. And I knew I had to fight Nick if I was going to last. And the fact is that I really didn't have the heart to do it because he was such a good guy. And we, we went at it a little bit. I, I had torn the room apart a little bit with Nick and I, and I was looking for something, and I accused him of something, and we went at it. Then the next day in practice, we went at it. He was a pretty good fighter, and uh, he, sting, he stung me a couple times. But the fact is that I went at him. And I fought Danny Newman. I fought a lot of guys at that training camp. Uh, a couple never made it because of the way I handled it. But the fact is that, that, that the Rangers, similar to – Cincinnati, they were auditioning people, and that's what it came down to. And uh, Ferguson eventually, he, he, he played with me a little bit, and so I got tired of it, and I jumped to the WHA and, you know, made my own way. But ultimately, even Ferguson gave me respect. He ended up in Winnipeg one night, and he said to me, I'm going to try to get you. I said, don't bother. I'm not interested in playing for you. We, <laughs> we went down the throat before. I said, just leave me be. I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, he, had, he, had, he had Claxon, you know. I fought Claxon one night, and that's the only time we ever played against each other. And who the hell is going to play against Winnipeg anyway? They got Hall and Nielsen and uh, and Hedberg and, and Schoberg and, uh, you know, that Barry Long, and they, they had some pretty good players on that team, and Ruskowski. They, they had a good team. And, you know, I did what I wanted to do, which was get it so that, Cincinnati and Winnipeg, they played hockey, you know, and they had a better team than us, but, you know, it wasn't a, wasn't a, 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 a fight fest every night. Who did you, did you have a guy who just was a, a pain in the neck for you to fight? Uh, a guy who just always seemed to have your number or who was the, the, the toughest guy that you fought in all those years? There's a lot of them. Well, it's interesting because Gilly said to me, Clark Gilly said to me one night years after we, I was reffing, and he was he was retired. He said to me, how come we never fought? I said, I never wanted to get killed. I said, I've seen you fight. And he said to me, yeah, I've seen you fight, too. He said, uh, I would have had to kill you nine times. You kept getting up. <laughs> but, you know, you look at, at different guys along the way, uh, and certainly you look at a guy like Val James who played in the minors and then made it, uh, and one of the few African-American kids I mean, even though he was American, he had a tough job, and he was with Toronto and broke me and all that. And he was a tough guy. I hit him with a punch one night in Erie that would have killed a normal man, mm-hmm. and he just he blinked. And uh, it was, you know, my, I ended up with a black guy, and he, he said to me, look at your eye, it's all black. I said, look at your hands, the paint's coming off. <laughs> 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 and, and, and that's actually a book. 
<laughs> he wrote a book and, 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 and told that story. The funny thing is that uh, there wasn't, there were only three colors in my, in my, in my uh, crayon box as a player. And they were uh, white ice, uh, red bulls, and black pucks. And as a referee, mm-hmm. I only had two crayons in my box, and that was black and white. Right. And, and you know, that racial stuff, any of that stuff, I never saw it. Although I, I did hear a lot of anti-American junk, but I just laughed it off. Because every time they have a war, they invite us. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. So, Paul, coming full circle, uh, we come back to the game that inspired the cover of your book, You Want to Go, uh, with you and Terry O'Reilly on the cover. It's Thanksgiving, 1979. You've already discussed a little bit how Wayne Cashman tried to set the tone prior to the game. Now the game begins. How did all? How did everything unfold? Well, the interesting part of the game was that in the first period, both teams stuck to hockey. And while the game was still close, the fact is that uh, the intimidation aspect started to creep in. And we were standing in front of the net. O'Reilly was on his right wing and I was on the left. And Wally Weir was at the corner hash marks of the circle. And we lined up and, and O'Reilly put a stick behind Weir's knee. Now, they had fought two nights before. So when he did that, I stepped in front of O'Reilly and Weir. And I said, if you're going to fight him, you should fight me. And he dropped. we dropped our gloves. The two linesmen stepped in and, and stopped us. And we got from Dave Newell, the referee, uh, each an unsportsmanlike conduct or delay a game penalty, which was fine. We went to the box, and I was sort of uh, thirsty, and there was no water bottle in our box. And I leaned over and said to uh, Cheevers, you know, O'Reilly was looking straight ahead, I said, hey, can you throw me a water bottle? And he squirted it in my direction and, and, and <laughs> chuckled and said something uh, uncomplimentary. Well, <clears throat> I said to him, I know where you live. When this game's over, I'm going to drive to Linfield, burn your house down, and shoot those horses. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, more or less, when O'Reilly and I stepped out, there was an icing, and we just dropped the gloves, and and, uh, away we went. And it's interesting because people would say, oh, you picked the fight. I just think it was there, it was on the table, and it was going to inevitably happen. While I was sitting in the box, Gary Dilk skated over after I fought O'Reilly, and he says, we're going to kill you tonight. And I said, hey, do yourself a favor. Go back to the bench because I'm only doing the heavyweights. <laughs> and uh, within about two seconds, Jonathan skated over, and he just stood in front of me. And I said, hey, Pocahontas, in three minutes I'll be out, and you and I are going next. And uh, away we went. Then at the end of the game, the game was out of hand. Um, Rattel had a great game. I think he had a hat trick. Middleton was playing well, and we just we just didn't score enough goals. Gilbert was the goaltender. I know I had a couple shots and had a couple chances, but he played pretty well. Long story short, there was maybe a minute to go. I lined up on the right wing, and opposite this other Bruin, I didn't know him. And when the puck dropped, he grabbed me, and we wrestled. And I was I was a little angry because. 
you know, if he wanted to fight me, we should have just dropped the gloves, separated it, backed off, and let it happen. But he grabbed me and then wrestled me, and I didn't think there was much to it. We we ended up falling on the ground, and I think I shoved my thumb up his nose a little bit and uh, got his attention. And uh, we we both got five minutes for fighting. That was my third. So thus, I, I got two for uh, delay a game, three fives and a ten which was the game misconduct and as I was walking out I turned and waved to the crowd a lot of people thought I was waving hamming it up but actually there was a little boy that lived two houses away that had leukemia and he was in the hospital and I had promised him that I was going to wave to him his name was Christos Caldas and I, I did wave to him and about a month later he passed and I always um, think that Besides fulfilling my dream to play in the National Hockey League, I also fulfilled a wish for a youngster that we actually took out skating with a whole bunch of NHL guys during the summer to allow him to be an NHLer for a day. So the game had a lot more meaning than just being uh, a first game for, for a rookie player in the NHL. When the game was over, I walked over to the bridge right by the garden and I threw my skates in. <laughs> and I, and it was funny because people will ask me why did I do that because I, 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 I was perfectly prepared to not play again. As far as I was concerned, I had achieved the goal I had sought out. But then again, then I thought about it. I had I had another pair of skates anyway. I always had two or three pair with me. And uh, we went to Hartford the next night. I didn't get a shift. Then we went to Quebec on the way home. We went through customs about two in the morning. And we got through customs, and the customs agent in Quebec City, Adla Duke, La Toile, La Pierre, uh, <laughs> Nordic, Stewart. Are you a Nordic? I said, Oh, yeah. Mm. He said, I thought all the Nordics were French. I said, Not the tough ones. They had to go to Boston for tough guys. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, later, we played against uh, Washington, and uh, Mike Gartner was my teammate there. And uh, he was playing for Caps. He skated by me, and I had gone out for a shift, and the, the crowd gave me a standing ovation. And Gardner slid up next to me. He says, they like you here, Stu. I said, yeah, hard to believe, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. I went back down to the minors for a little bit more, then Quebec recalled me again, and I stayed the rest of the year. And a lot of people make, uh, I think, with with an inflection of disparaging uh, comments to to say, well, you only played 21 games. Well, I dressed for about 40. But if you don't take a shift, you don't get a game played. Right. And dressing against Montreal, I didn't get a shift. Dressing against uh, uh, Pittsburgh, I played, but Chicago, I didn't play. And and you know, it's, it's just one of those things. And I think necessarily, it was just. Uh, you know, Alan Eagleson and the way the Players Association was at that time, but it didn't matter to me because my career was defined by that moment, especially with Terry O'Reilly. So when I chose the picture for my book and chose the title, I think it was uh, the most appropriate and the most fitting. And a lot of people don't remember this, but after that game against Quebec, I think I... I, I took away a little bit of the armor and the mystique of the Bruins because they went on a little bit of a tailspin. And it's interesting because Freddie Creighton got fired 
not too long after that that they right. weren't winning. And I, I can't can't say exactly, but I think maybe I, I proved my point that I belonged or had a chance to belong in the NHL, but I also proved that maybe the Bruins weren't as big and bad as they everyone thought they were. Well, there weren't too many players in the history of that era of the Boston Bruins who came in single-handedly, took on the toughest toughest guys, and uh, I guess lived to tell about it. But um, that was that was a different. You know, a lot of times, you know, Flyers would come in, you'd have uh, three or four guys going or whatever. Uh, you went in that night and, um, you know, took them all on one by one. And that's, as I said earlier, I watched that game, I remember it, and that's, it was so memorable. I when when you know when YouTube came about and I saw those clips, I said, "Oh, hallelujah!" That was I. I wasn't I wasn't hallucinating. Paul Stewart went into the Boston Garden and it fought all these cats, and uh, it was uh, very memorable to be sure. Well, I, I did get to play against the Flyers, and it was interesting because uh, I got butt ended and clipped in the chin, got a few stitches, and I followed the player to the bench, and uh, when I did. Uh, the Flyers being who they were, uh, I, I, I was willing to take all of those guys on, but the difference between them and the Bruins was that the Flyers, they all came at once. So I was looking at Mac, Largy, Paddock, and Wilson all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know which one I was going to fight, and I ended up getting uh, getting into it. Mac, Largy, I got, I got cut pretty good, but you know I stood up to that guy too, and I, I also stood up to the rest of the team. And it's just... You know, the the fact, going back to it, is that I wasn't inclined necessarily to just want to fight, but I knew that that was the reason why that the teams had signed me and brought me in. And I accepted that, which display is not a lack of intelligence, but the fact is that it, it showed that I had intelligently guessed or, or arrived at, at exactly how my ticket was going to be punched for, for the NHL and how to get there. So... I have no regrets, and now if people enjoy the book, it's an inviting cover, but on the back side is a picture of me walking off the ice in 2000 at the Toronto All-Star Game, and I had given a speech on behalf of Roger Nielsen and all of those that had were, were afflicted with cancer, and I had my son with me, and my opening line was, I'd like you to meet the reason why I fought so hard to come back to my life in the NHL. This is my son, Macaulay. John Stewart. And guess what? I arrived and uh, I got to do things that other people perhaps never thought I would ever get to do. And I think I owe Terry O'Reilly and Stan Jonathan and Al Secord and maybe Bobby Schmantz too <laughs> a, a, a bit of a thank you for, for uh, helping me to get there. Paul. Looking back at your life and your career, what type of lessons have you tried to instill in your sons? And for those who will be reading your book, uh, of course, the book goes beyond hockey. And what can they learn from your life experiences to impart into their own lives? Well, the sayings that I have been given over the time by more, more brilliant men than I such as Frank Advari, the Hall of Fame referee, who said to me, excuses are for losers. Count on yourself. Get to the net. See the play yourself. Don't rely upon replay or the linesman. Work with them 
but make yourself your own best friend out there. That's one thing. The second was something that Douglas MacArthur said. Preparation is the key to victory. Everything that's going to happen, be prepared for it, whether it's the physicality of the game or the snowstorm. Always prepare for the storm, never the norm. And the fact is that I, 20 years, other than when I was sick, I, I never missed a game. Weather, illness, injury, I, I, I stayed on the ice. And even when I got sick and I was on chemo, I refereed. Excuses are for losers. Show up. And you don't tell the people that you're on chemo and you're a little tired. You know what? They don't care. They paid their money to see a great hockey game. Referee it. And that's what my dad taught me. And I think that the fact is that I tell my children and I, and I tell anybody else that's listening, develop a skill that no matter what happens, no matter where you go in the world, you can compete and you can get a job and you can work it. And, and, and for refereeing, both of my boys referee, and they may have not wanted to, but now they know. My son's in college and he's making 800 a week where his roommates are stocking shelves at the grocery for $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. And my, my son's refereeing college hockey. You know what? Sports are recession-proof. They'll always have games. When they have games, they'll always need a referee. They'll always need an umpire. It's well said, Paul. As I said earlier, I am greatly anticipating reading your book, and I know uh, our audience will love it. And I would strongly suggest them to get the book because uh, the stories are endless, but the life lessons are there too. And if you're an old-time hockey fan, new hockey fan, or maybe not even a fan, you want to learn a little bit about grit, intensity, and overcoming obstacles, go to youwantogo.com, which is Paul's website for the book. We are uh, very grateful you're here with us, Paul. You're a great guy and a great credit to the game. And thanks again for spending some time with us on the podcast today. Well, thanks very much, and hello to everyone. I'm wishing you all, as I had in 1979, a wonderful Thanksgiving. (laughs) All right, Paul Stewart. Thanks so much. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at ProHockeyAlumni.org.